So we're not going to get, we're just, this is really a Bible overview of Daniel and a little bit about it. Um, probably next time we're together, we'll look at, boy, I wish I had enough time to teach the whole book. Um, it's really fascinating. Uh, we'll go a little more depth into it just as part of the overview, but this is just an introduction to it uh, in regards to that. It is a, it is a fascinating book um, as far as that goes. So let's open up in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this, again, this opportunity to look into your word and uh, Father, as we look at an overview tonight, uh, to see uh, how intricate things are and, and to see how you worked in the life of one young man. I just pray that you'll open our eyes, that you'll help us to gain something from it. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Okay, so Daniel. Is that song, Dare to Be a Daniel? Okay. So Daniel's one of the major books. I mean, there's apocalyptic literature. Um, in different places, but Isaiah has some, Ezekiel, and then Daniel, Zechariah, and Revelation. Um, but we think of Daniel a lot. So Daniel's where we're going to spend a little bit of time tonight, uh, just to look at the overview of the book itself. Okay, so there are three, four Daniels in the Bible. The three other ones can be found in First Chronicles chapter 3, 1. Uh, King David and Abigail had a son named Daniel. In Ezra, um, they start listing the family leaders that are uh, being taken and going uh, away to Babylon under King Artaxerxes, and there we find a Daniel. And then in Nehemiah, um, when they're back in the land and they look at the um, they look at the law, and then they make this little they make a covenant and they have all the priests and and leaders sign it. There is a Daniel's name appears on the seal of the covenant. And that's recorded for us in Nehemiah. But that's not the Daniel we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about this Daniel. And the name means, God is my judge. Come across Daniel. When we look at the book of Daniel to understand the author of it, we just have to really look in the book itself. We find in Daniel 8.15, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And again in 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And then in 9.2, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And then again, we get confirmation of Daniel being the author of the book by going into the New Testament. In Matthew, Jesus is talking, and in Matthew twenty four fifteen. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And in 927, this is what we find, and he shall make a strong covenant with with many for one week, and for a half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of the abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So even Christ looks back and says, hey, Daniel was the author. 
They're pretty confident on we know who wrote the book. Now, Daniel himself, we believe he was about 15 years old when you open up the book in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, uh, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels, vessels in the treasury of his God. So this was the first captivity, and we'll get into that, and we believe Daniel was taken then, and we'll give you a date in just a second. Go a little further into the book in the first chapter, then the king, king commanded these names, uh, Asabenus, or Penis, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility. And among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And then you will know them better by, everybody knows Daniel and Belteshazzar, but you'll know better Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And that would be from? From? How do we know those names so easily? Whoops, I got a mic here. (laughs) From the fiery furnace, right? So we know them by their given names in Babylon. So what else do we know about Daniel? Well, 1.4 gives us a little bit more. He was a youth. That's probably why they're guessing sort of 16 and under. He was a youth without blemish and of good appearance. Um, he starts sounding like horses, when, but that's basically what they've been looking for. They wanted somebody who was sturdy, who they could work with, skillful in wisdom, had to be endowed with knowledge, understanding, be able to understand things, and competence. So they needed him to be able to go before the king, and they were taking the best of the best because they were going to use these men to work with the other Jews that were coming. So they wanted to teach them both literature and their language. So here it is here. He was brainwashed into the Babylonian culture for the task of assisting dealing with other imported Jews. If you recall, oh, we'll get to it in just a second, how many, how many um, exiles there were, because there was more than one. Uh, our guess is he lived more than 85 years just by how long he lived, and that's one of the charts uh, that we'll look at it, it uh, in a little bit. And God blessed Daniel's faithfulness and character. We're going to look just at a couple of verses around that also. And, and you know, if you've studied the book at all or know anything about Daniel, as he proved himself, he continued to serve as a statesman. And I think there's seven or eight um, kings from two different empires that he served under. So as he was um, going through things as a young man, obviously he was attentive He was blessed by the Lord, and his faithfulness was noticed by the other rulers, and he continued to serve in the court, even though he himself was Jewish. Um, And he served, as we said, two world empires, um, Babylonian and the Medo-Persian, or the Medes and Persian, depending how you want to say it. Um, But as a young man, Daniel found himself thrust into a very polytheistic, religious culture. They had thousands of gods throughout their area, um, and he was put into that. But Daniel stood firm no matter what the circumstances. 
And that is probably one of the things outside of his writing and is outside of the prophecies. When we think of Daniel, we think of a young man who stood firm in his faith and, and he, he, just, he just didn't let them rock his world. His commitment to God was there and he wasn't moving from it. The first place we come into that is the story found in Daniel 1.8, at least the beginning. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So you recall the story, especially if you taught Sunday school, because it's one of the famous ones. As they were brought in before them, the king spread every. He was sparing nothing. Wine, choice meats, everything was available to him. But Daniel saw what was going on behind the scenes and everything with that, and he says, nope, just give us vegetables. Vegetables and water is all I need. The only thing when I read through this, I'm not sure how popular he was with some of the other guys, Um, but they don't address that in the book. But that's a question I always have. But he stood firm. So for ten, he finally, after being rejected a few times, he was able to talk to the eunuch, and they agreed to 10 days. And after 10 days, they would stand everybody up, and they would look at the men that had been eating all the choice stuff that set before the king, and they would look Daniel and his three companions and see how they were. And at the end of the 10 days, Daniel's and three companions looked better. And God blessed their faithfulness. And I know it's a, a story that we, we often tell little children, but is it a story that we take to heart for ourselves? Because it's not only with choice meats and wine and different things like that. How many times are we tempted in this world? How many times are there things around us that we could get involved with and others might not know? And do we stand firm in our faith? I mean, I think as an adult, there's way more temptations out there for us. And way more things to get involved with, especially the compromises available in this world. Um, the little phones and iPads, as much as they, they're supposed to bring us closer together, it sort of seems to drive us into our own little worlds. And, and people just don't know what other people are doing. And so it's easy to compromise. And whether it's something on a tax form that you don't think anybody near is going to see it, or, or, or whether it's, you know, you get extra change at the grocery store, or they don't charge you right. How many people stand firm and say, you know what, I need to be honest in all things and follow through on that? So Daniel stood firm. He stood firm in his faith, and the Lord blessed. Then again, the next one came around in Daniel chapter 6. Then, the, the, then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and the perfects and the satraps, the counselors, the governors, and are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. And another one. We often take it down to the kids' levels and we encourage them, but do we take it to heart? Are we willing to stand firm in your faith? And, and you really, as a congregation, really need to be praying for your young people. 
we live in such a woke... You, you wouldn't believe the training out there now that they have to go through. Um, Margaret, you've had to do some of it too. <laughs> yeah, I had to sit through it. And it's just, it, it's just so anti-God. They talk about woke capitalism and woke this, and there, there's lots of things out there. And it's very hard sometimes to stand firm because young people are looking at it and going, I don't believe in that. And, and they'll make you take the course. I agreed to take the course, but I wasn't signing anything. And, and so I sat with a number of other Christians. We all talked to each other and said, what, what, what time in the day are you taking it? So we all took it at the same time so we could encourage each other. And we're like, and the one that said they'd be the quietest, Marjorie had a friend of ours that we go back and forth with that I worked with. Um, sat beside me and she says, if Robert says anything, kick him. Uh, <laughs> we need his job. Just keep him quiet. But it wasn't me. It was somebody else that just took him to task. She was a contract lady. Um, and she just took him to task over some, and I just sat back and listened to it and they looked at me and I said, I agree with her. Um, but it, it's hard because they're looking at jobs and looking at promotions and different things like that. And we need to pray that they will stand strong. It's very difficult. So if you know people that are teachers, that teach in the public system, it doesn't matter where you are. Um, there's been several teachers fired and let go from across different boards in Ontario and across Canada for misgendering, for standing against it and saying, well, I'm not going to do that. And it's very difficult. So when we think of, of praying, the principle is in the fact that they stood strong. And again, God looked at... I'm not sure where Daniel was. Oh, no, Daniel was in this one. That's the fiery furnace. Sorry. I told you I was tired. Um, so Daniel went in to the lion's den and God closed his mouth. The other thing I find interesting in this pericope, this little short story, is the fact of how arrogant political leaders can become sometimes. This king was so arrogant Viewing himself as a god. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good to me. And people pump people up to get things from them. And that's exactly what happened here. And if you involve, whether it's in a workplace atmosphere or if you follow politics at all, I'm not going to go down that road, but I'll just say this, that people pump other people up and stoke their ego to get other things that they want. And it's, it's a very difficult world for your young people. Okay, so we move on. So what do we know about the history around the book when Daniel was living and what was going on? And, and I found this very interesting. So Egypt had invaded Babylon early in 605 B.C., and, and there had been some stuff back and forth. And Egypt was pretty dominant down around, uh, around Israel and different places like that, up, even up into Syria and the Turkish border. And they also had mercenaries because there were some Greek people involved with this. When they went and took on Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't king at the time. He was prince. And he gave them what we call good spanking. And then he chased them. He chased them all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula. And it was either on the way through Israel or on the way back through Israel that because Israel or Jerusalem had helped out Egypt, he decided to lay siege to Jerusalem when he was there. 
And that is when Daniel was conscripted to go with him when they went back. So that was in 605 BC was the first siege. There's two other invasions, 597, 587, or 586, depending who you listen to. So the siege was cut short because Nebuchadnezzar's father, who was the king, um, he, uh, he died. Actually, I'm one slide ahead of myself, aren't I? But anyhow, we'll get to that. So Josephus quotes um, a Babylonian historian, Barosus, there. And uh, he, he shows that the um, accounts of the separate Babylonian tax on the nation of Israel, on Judah, Jerusalem, uh, were accurate. And it's interesting, this specific attack, if you were to go to the British Museum, underneath the Babylonian Chronicles, you can find it archived. And it, it, it's the same attack that's mentioned in Jerusalem, or in, um, in Daniel here. That discovery was made back in the 1800s. Sorry, now here. So his father died, and when his father died, he cut his um, attack short, ordered them to take some of the royal people and the nobles with them and bring them back. But Nebuchadnezzar himself did this 805-kilometer trip from Jerusalem back to Babylon in, in two weeks, is what history tells us. So there were no planes, no automobiles. That was a fast trip. In two weeks, so he could go claim his royal throne. And so he didn't get pushed out. So as soon as he heard the news about his father, off he was. And Daniel was in the first wave of captives led off to Babylon. And of course, you would, you would take the brightest and the best, right? Because in taking the brightest and the best and bringing them with you, if, if Jerusalem gives you any problem, well, it's like, hey, well, we've got a bunch of your brightest and best here with us. Um, so you shouldn't give us any trouble. But Jerusalem still caused problems. Okay, so we look a little further down. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand in this 597 deportation. Jehoiakim, the king at that time, was sent to Babylon. And it's fascinating because Ezekiel makes mention of this and others. Uh, or no, Ezekiel goes in that deportation with the king. Um, and you can read about that in Second Kings. Fascinating part is that in Isaiah 39, verse 7, it prophesies about this. Now, if you recall, does anybody recall when Isaiah wrote? between 739 and 681 B.C. So these ones were 605 and 597. Hosea is talking about it but 100 years or so beforehand. So in 5 through 8, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. And, and, and remember, in 722, the northern tribes went. And who took the northern tribes? Assyria. So Assyria was the dominant force when Isaiah was writing this. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried, now this is odd, to Babylon. Because Assyria was the big power. Assyria 
in 722 would take over the kingdom. So, depending when this was written, um, Babylon hadn't started to flex its muscles just yet. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons will come up from you, whom you, whom you will father shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Okay, now back into Daniel. And again, if you go to read in, in 2 Kings 23-24 and in 2 Chronicles 36, you can begin to piece this together. But then there was this three-year siege on Jerusalem. And then we have the third and final deportation. Some say 587. I put that in. I should have put 586 because that's what I was taught. But at this time, the temple was destroyed in 586 and it was raised by fire. Babylon had had it. This is the third time they were there. They were in 205. They're in there at 597. And now in 586 BC, they'd had it. And they, they just raised the place, just set fire to it and said, okay. And this was the third deportation of people out of the promised land and into slavery. So Daniel served as a high official in Babylon under several kings, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, 48 and 49, followed by, and there are two different names depending where you go for looking for your reading. Um, Amel Marduk in, in, in the brackets, and I'm not even going to attempt them all. But anyhow, three of the kings are never mentioned in Daniel. They're that quick, and I'll show you the timeline. Actually, if you turn to the back of your back of the three pages, you will see the timeline there. And you can see that some of the kings were very short, and three of them, you can match them up, Daniel never even mentions because they're that quickly through in regards to that. You also notice in what I've given you, um, let's go to it, there it is there. What I've given you, there's an asterisk beside Belshazzar. He, he, his father went off to war, and Belshazzar was left to tend to the kingdom. But Belshazzar, he was never given the title king. His dad and him kind of co-ruled, but his dad held on to the title closely while he was off gallivanting and um, taking into other lands. But you can see on there the, the life of Daniel. Uh, he starts before he was taken captive. And you can see all the different kings right to Cyrus the Great. And you can also see the two different shades there. You know, it's a little harder in the black and white, but the two different shades there represent the Babylonian Empire and then there's the Achaemenid Empire or Medes and Persians or Medes and Purge, however you want Persia, however you want to say it. Um, it was known by two different names. So he spanned two different kingdoms because the Medes and Pers Persians came in, took care of the Babylonians, and then Cyrus the Great was, if you look in history, I, I can't even name off all the lands that he called himself king for. And it was sometime at the end of that reign that Daniel passes from the scene. Uh, we're not sure of the exact date. 85 to 90 years old is sort of the guess, and that's partially because we don't have a very very first beginning date for, for Daniel. Okay, 
And I found this interesting. I often think, well, what's going on in the rest of the world? So in the rest of the world at this time, the construction had begun on the uh, Acropolis in Athens. So at this time, towards the end of Daniel's life, um, Greece was just starting to flex a little muscle. Uh, They're not quite there yet. The Mayan civilization had begun to thrive in Mexico. Never think of what is happening across the other side of the world. Aesop wrote his fables. Confucius and Buddha were alive at the time. Olive trees were imported and started to be planted in Italy. And the Phoenicians sailed around under the sponsorship of the Egyptian pharaoh at the time, sailed around in a boat around Africa, starting, I think, in the Red Sea. And around they went. Um, So there's a lot going on in the world at that time. Okay. And then the very first one is a small outline for Daniel. I want to dive a little deeper next time we're together. Well, it begins with a personal personal history of Daniel, what's happening. We looked at some of that already. This part of the book is written in Hebrew. And then in verse 4 of chapter 2, the book switches to be written in Aramaic. And when it's written in Aramaic, we have, again, history of the Gentiles, or you might call the time of the Gentiles. That goes right through to 628. And then he starts those prophecies, the the future, what's going to happen in 7-1. And he starts it in Aramaic, but in chapter 8, he switches back to writing it in Hebrew. And in the Hebrew is the prophetic history of Israel uh, during the times of, of, of the Gentiles. And it's these parts that we begin to use with Revelation, and we'll begin to piece some of those together as we get a little further on it. Okay, so that's a bit of an outline for the book for you. I'm not going to read this. I did give this to you. It was a general um, summary of sort of what's happening in the book. We're going to dive a little bit deeper, I think, next time to look at a couple of the prophecies and some of the stuff that's happening. But that'll give you a little read-through on it. Okay, so here's something. I'm going to show you video in a second, but before I show you the video, there's um, biblical chiasms, there's structures done in the Bible. So they're going to talk about these in Scripture. And no, I don't expect everybody to walk away the first time through going, oh, I know what a chiasm is in Bible. But it's important because we have to remember that when the books of the Bible were written, they were structured for us to help us understand and to piece things together. Um, so it's a literary device, and, and it, it's sort of symmetrical, mirror-like structure to help you understand what's going on. So I'll give you an example of what this looks like. So when they talk about it in the little video I'm going to show you, you'll understand. So let's look at Matthew twenty-three twelve. So in Matthew twenty-three twelve, we see, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So you can see in there, whoever exalts themselves, there's a bit of an envelope here too with the next one, will be exalted. Okay? And then, will be humbled those who humble themselves. 
So it mirrors with some ideas, and it's to bring a focus in on you so that you remember the verse and the teaching there. So whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but if you humble yourself, then God will exalt you. Do you see the little structure there? So sometimes we think of... I, th- I think sometimes we think people from thousands of years ago were stupid. Um, they weren't stupid. They were quite intelligent. And they had literary devices and they used different things as they put Scripture together. So they would have crafted it. And they may have rewritten it a couple of times, not just on the first go, saying, oh, this is how I want it to fit together. And no, that's not quite how I want to say it. And they would work away at it. And this is one of the structures. So he's going to talk about chiastic structures in the chapters of how they begin to mirror each other. I just wanted to, just so you understand a little bit of what's happening. So this comes from the Bible Project. I like how they do the Bible book overviews. I think they're well done to give us an overview of what's going on in it. At the end, though, he doesn't take a a, a strong stance, and it's not the place in an overview to do it. There are some things, and I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I remember listening to the guy in charge of this preach. So there are some things with inside the Bible project that I've listened to that I'm like, hey, I'm not so sure I'd agree with that. But when they do their overviews on their books, most of them are really well done. And I thought they did an excellent job with Daniel of at least getting us to understand the flow and the structure of it. And the next time together, we'll do a little bit more with it. And it should work if I go like this. The book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. 
But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refuse to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted. They're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death, and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a God, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts. And like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast, identified as a really evil empire. And it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that's what these final three visions set out to explore. 
In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is an image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now, by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John, the visionary who wrote the Revelation, could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings in their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. Except at the end there, we would say that we're looking for the future king to finally come. And that's part of the whole realm of arguments. And it doesn't mean people who hold differently aren't believers. It's just they don't hold to the same. Uh, Bible Project has some great ones in series of books. When they get off into some of the other topics, you really need to preview them quite a bit and then decide whether or not you want to show them. Um, This one I thought was fine. At the end, He did mention, but that's where we would stand. We're looking for a future fulfillment with that. So that's a little bit about Daniel. I think we're going to try to dive into some of it just a little bit more uh, before we move on and then sort of try to put some things together from this. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us again and for, for writings that can encourage us. And Father, as we look at the world that we live in and, and the difficulties that we face,
and as we look at other Ukraine and other places, Father, we pray for those believers that they might think of Daniel and other books that offer hope that in time you will make all things right, that in time Christ will rule from a throne, and there in the perfect kingdom, there we will find life and life eternal. There we will find peace, the peace that was given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, will be fully fulfilled at that time, that there will be a literal reigning. Not, not just, it, it's wonderful that we can have a deposit of that through Christ ruling in our lives, but at the same time as we, we live in the here but not yet, we look forward to when you will rule from a throne and all this other stuff will be taken care of. So, Father, as we go about this week and we run into difficulties and we, we think of those around the world who may have greater difficulties, may we find hope in the assurance that one day you will reign. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.